If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about barriers, talking about skill barriers in games. What are they? What does that mean? How do you design around them? How do you design like into them and lean into these skill challenges? And we're talking to Jeff Fraser, a designer, a rulebook editor, a developer, working with companies like Jelly Bean Games and Pandasaurus and WizKids and various others around the industry. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Gabe. Yeah, man. Really uh, glad to have you here. You're a guy that uh, has done a lot of different things. There were a lot of different topics that we could have uh, dived into, and you would have been a, a pretty good guest to have. But we're doing this this skill barriers thing, which is a really interesting topic. It's something that I think a lot about, especially when it comes to several of these skill barriers that we're going to uh, get into. We'll kind of go one by one through these and just try to figure it out. Like, why, why do people struggle with these things? And as a designer, what do you need to be thinking about when it comes to these various barriers in game design and game playing but before we get into that who are you how'd you get into game design all that kind of thing yeah so um i you know started the way as so many board gamers do as a as a gamer who loved gaming and started designing in my garage and tinkering with tinkering with stuff um about three years ago i quit my job in journalism to start working full-time as a technical writer uh in rule books uh so now i uh, my main gig is to edit rule books and write rule books for uh, some of the publishers that you mentioned. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, I do that. I started doing a bit more development work uh, in the past uh, year or two. And uh, of course, I'm still doing some designs on the side. Very cool. And so tell me a little bit more as far as like different things that you've, you've been able to dive into. Cause you were telling me before the, uh, before we hit record, you've worked with a lot of different companies. So kind of give people an idea of maybe some of the games, some of the projects you've worked on that maybe they've heard of. Oh yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So uh, most recently uh, I did uh, a lot of development work and editing on brew, which is a Pandasaurus title that uh, came out earlier this year. Uh, I've also worked with them on uh, dinosaur Island Roar and Wright and dinosaur world. Uh, I've done some work with Jellybean Games on things like uh, Dracula's Feast and Village Pillage. Uh, WizKids, I did the rulebook for um, a new game coming out called Free Radicals, uh, which looks like it, it's, it's a very big game. Uh, they're hoping it'll make a, quite a big splash, splash this year. Um, if I go back a few years, I got my start working with uh, Academy Games. Uh, I did a revision of their rulebook for 1775 Rebellion and for the Storms of Steel uh uh, Conflict of Heroes, Storms of Steel, third edition. Uh, and uh, yeah, just lots of rule books in between. Um, 
I do probably, I work on a, about four to six game projects at any given time. Uh, it's hard to keep track of them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely know that feeling. Oh, very cool, man. So you've had an opportunity to work on a, a lot of really well-known games, very good games. And so I'm excited to kind of just pick your brain about skill barriers and things to be thinking about as designers. Because a lot of the games you've worked on tap into these things. And I know games that you have designed or are currently designing uh, have run into, the, run into these barriers as well. And so let's get a good working definition. What are we even talking about? When you say skill barriers, what does that mean? Well, so I want to separate uh, the difference between what I think of as the general skill of board gaming, um, which is sort of uh, strategizing and understanding mechanics, understanding the flow of a game, understanding how to play uh, a modern board game versus uh, specific skills uh, like dexterity or memory or uh, mathematics, things that um, are uh, more uh, specialized and that certain games will test at a higher level uh, than, than other games will. Right. And these seem to be things that people either love or they hate. It's not a lot of in between when someone says, "Ooh, I love dexterity games. I don't I don't hear very many people saying, yeah, I guess I kind of like dexterity games. OK, now it seems to be very one side or the other. And I feel like that's just kind of part of the, the nature of these things. And so you mentioned a few right there. And then uh, there's four that I really want to dive into kind of four of the main ones, the, the primary ones, like you said, dexterity, memory, math and spatial reasoning. And so let's just jump into each one of those individually and just kind of work our way through each one and then move on to the next. Do you have a preference where we start, sir? Yeah. Um, so I started thinking about this a lot more recently because of a, of a game that I'm working on right now called uh, Cartouche, uh, which is on Kickstarter with Coffee Bean Games, which is uh, a brand of Jelly Bean Games that works on uh, larger, heavier Euro games. And um, it is a visuospatial reasoning game so it's it's uh polyomino tetris style tile placement uh and while we were playtesting the game i was spending a lot of time looking at how players uh assess the visual puzzle of how they move their pieces around on the board their their little tetris pieces to fill up the space and it really struck me that uh the limit on what Play, what the average player was able to accomplish was a lot lower than I had anticipated. Uh, like usually when you're developing or working on a game, you have an idea of the skill ceiling of, of how complex the game will be before people start disengaging from it. Um, if, if you add too many rules or you add too much decision to make, then people will sort of just not really play the game anymore. They'll start to feel overwhelmed. And what, what surprised me during the design of this game was that I, based on how I play visual spatial games, I had anticipated a skill ceiling that was much higher than what people were actually able to do um, because there was this barrier there where some people could just not visualize what their board would look like when they placed a tile on it. Um, so to give it just a little bit of detail about this game, it is, um, we had planned to sort of take the the tiling formula of something like Baron Park or uh, Cottage Garden um, or Patchwork and sort of build on that and create a more dynamic puzzle. So a lot of those games have to deal with sort of just filling up a space. Maybe there's a few tiles you want to leave empty, but overall you're trying to find the most efficient, efficient way to fill up a grid with those pieces. 
And so we tried to do something where you're not just filling up a grid, but you are simultaneously trying to make shapes on your board with your pieces uh, to match up certain colors of tiles to certain icons on your board and to create uh, paths along your board of individual colors. And so there's, there's a variety of different objectives. And if you place your tiles really cleverly, you can complete two or three objectives at once kind of thing. Um, and what we found was people could not look at the tiles in the, in the market that they could draft and then picture where they were going on their board as efficiently as we expected them to be able to. Some players could do it extremely well and they enjoyed the game a lot. Other players simply could not picture that at all. Even if they were to pick up the tile, rotate around, see things, they still just could not visualize it on their board at all. And that's when we sort of started to diagnose this as a skill barrier, something that was getting in the way of people playing the game because it was testing a skill that not a lot of players had or that um, players had in varying quantity. Gotcha. Now, when you were watching the playtesters, how could you tell? Now, were, were they actually just saying, hey, I can't do this? Or were you noticing certain things about the way they were playing the game that you could go, oh, okay, this person really is just not getting it? Yeah. Um, so it was a bit of both. I mean, uh, players were generally pretty cognizant of, uh, like, they, they couldn't do it. Like, they would say, uh, they would either say, I'm terrible at spatial games. Or they would say something like, I felt super overwhelmed. The puzzle felt very confusing to me. They wouldn't necessarily diagnose that as being the case, but they would say the kind of things that you would associate with uh, the game being over their head, even if they were you know, a heavier gamer. Sometimes people who we knew play you know, uh, splatter spelling games or, or uh, Vital Zerta games would still feel like they were confused by this 90-minute uh, midweight euro and that's when we knew you know that they were dealing with a skill barrier uh, in terms of actual behaviors to look for we did start to see some of the same sorts of things usually what would happen was the players would start to gravitate towards something that they could get a handle on so they would try to ignore the parts of the game that they felt overwhelming and focus instead on on the bits and pieces that they could get um, and I think I mentioned that with this game, there's, there is an element where placing a colored tile next to a colored icon on the board gets your reward. Uh, people found that one fairly easy to deal with because the shape of the tile didn't matter. It was just the color. If it was next to the right thing, you would get a, you get a token. Um, and so we would start to see that players who were struggling would do that a lot. They would really home in on that one mechanic in the game and you could sort of, over the course of the game, you could look at one board and see how much they were focusing on that one thing. And that was usually a sign uh, that they were struggling to expand beyond that. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, as a designer, how do you know which way to go? As, as in, do you lean into that this is just the game and is a little bit more challenge of a game, but there are people out there that will, will love it versus, okay, let's tone it down some, let's make this a little simpler, a little easier to understand, open it up to a little bit broader market. How do you make that decision as a designer? What are your thoughts? Uh, it's, it's a very difficult decision to make. Um, and I, I wish that uh, <laughs> I had a better answer, but I, I feel like it's, uh, it really comes down to your design vision and what you're, you're setting out to make like do you want to make a game that is going to be really appreciated by a smaller audience uh who you know would like that game a lot and, and can't really find it elsewhere 
or are you trying to make a game that's going to be a smash hit that everybody's going to love? Um, I think that right now, and this is sort of going beyond a design thing, um, it is hard to find a market for a niche game that is big enough to support that game. Um, if you are doing a game that is, I mean, there are certain markets, like if if we talk to Dexterity, which I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit, there's certainly a big enough market for Dexterity games that people, uh, that you can make a good Dexterity game. Uh, but if you look at something like Memory, um, your question is, you know, how many how many modern day gamers out there are looking for a memory based game? Uh, and that is a very tough question to answer. Uh, a lot of the time that's a question that, that a publisher would have to answer more than a designer. Uh, but for me, when I approach these games, I, I look at it as like, you know, do, do I, do I want to play this game? Am I the market for this game? And uh, in the case of our tile laying game, I, I, felt that you know i really enjoyed the visual puzzle my co-designer peter hayward really enjoyed the visual puzzle and so we sort of made the bet that there was enough people out there who enjoyed the puzzle at that level that we could we could keep pushing in that direction right yeah that's definitely something to just kind of keep in mind especially as as you're going to be pitching the game is is there a market for this is this something that the publisher that you're 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 targeting is going to uh, to understand and lean into now when it comes to simplifying these kind of games and saying, okay, let's tone things back just a little bit, simplify things just a little bit. What are, what are your thoughts? I know with Baron Park, you're really only using a very small board one at a time. You know, you don't have this big, massive thing. It's just kind of a small, I can't remember the size of the grid, but it's not very big. So that's mm-hmm. one way I guess you could do it. just kind of simplifying and, and shrinking down the space to make it a little easier to, to figure out. And, but what are some of your thoughts as far as like how to simplify and kind of tone things down? Well, so one thing that we discovered through the process of designing this game, and, and we, we were working on this game for about uh, three or four years. It has a has a very long story of going through several different variations. I mean, initially it was a, uh, it was sea life themed and you were stacking different types of coral. And the version that we have now is, is Egyptian themed and you're, you're placing hieroglyphics on a wall. So it's gone through quite the evolution. But um during that process, one of the things we found was that we, we had a much more complicated uh, action selection system at the start. So uh, we started with something that was intended to be a bit like uh, Feast for Odin, where you had this visual puzzle, but there was a really you know, significant worker placement uh, system designed for how you're going to get those tiles onto your board. So Feast for Odin is, is a worker placement game with a tile placement mini game we had kind of wanted to do something similar with that. But what we kept finding was that the visual puzzle, the, the, the tile placement minigame was so complicated that people did not have uh, cognitive capacity left for the worker placements elements. And so we kept refining and refining our action selection. And, and the more we found players, um, we, we ultimately just completely ditched the action selection mes- mechanism and went with a tile drafting mechanic that was about as simple as we possibly could, where you just draft two tiles from a market every round and then place them on your board. And placing on your board became the whole game. So I guess um, to, to sort of uh, narrow that down, um, what, you, what you really want to do is make sure that if you are going to have a heavy skill testing thing and that's what you want your game to be about you want to focus on that as your core and not have it be attached to something else that might take away from that uh we 
again, initially it envisioned that we would have this pretty heavy puzzle as part of the game. Uh, but what we discovered was that the only way people could interact with it reliably was if it was the whole game. Um, and we ended up taking a, a lot of the other mechanics out of this game and, and using it for other ones. That's a really good point. And something that no matter what game you're working on is whatever the fun is, whatever the most fun part of the game is, figure out ways to focus on that. And if that means cutting out other things that aren't quite as fun or don't fully support the main mechanism or main idea of the game, then be intentional about that. And in your case, you you really have to think about the cognitive load and how much stress, I guess, you're putting on a player's brain. How do you measure that, though? I guess you said it earlier as far as as like, you know, you kind of tell players or are doing different things and, and that kind of thing. Is there anything else though that you can just kind of maybe as a designer while you're designing, like before you even get into playtesting, where you can go, okay, I think this might be too much. This might be too many actions, might be too many steps, anything that just from the designing standpoint before you even put it in front of people? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you want to you want to narrow the number of decisions that players are making on their turn. Um, so I was just talking about action selection was basically like bringing it down to which tile am I going to take and where am I going to place it? Because those were the most interesting decisions people were playing. They were also the hardest decisions people were making. So trying to get rid of any subsidiary decisions or automatic decisions like you know, exchanging currency to buy those tiles. That was something that we had initially, but we got rid of to try and make it more, uh, you know, just focused. Um, I mean, the other big source of cognitive load uh, that I find, uh, particularly when playtesting games, is how well your prototype is designed and how good your graphic design is. Um, I know there is... uh, it's a it's a tough balance to strike between making sure that you know you have uh, you have a minimal effort prototype. You're not wasting time making it look super fancy, but I do find that and one thing we found a lot with this game was that uh, when we used uh, rougher graphic design, people had to spend a lot more of their mental energy engaging with the graphic design to figure out what they should be doing, uh, which took away from their ability to do the puzzle. So. Uh, the, when we when we spent the time to do a better pass on the graphics and have better icons and have um, just like symbols and stuff that that actually made a bit more sense to people, then that got that extra cognitive load out of the way so they could really focus on the puzzle. Whereas initially, when we were sort of just throwing stuff around and mix of text and icons and whatever, just just whatever it was to get the point across, um, people would there would be a barrier on top of a barrier basically. And that would, uh, they, they would struggle. They would run totally run out of cognitive load before they even got to the puzzle. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Anything else you want to add as far as spatial, spatial reasoning is concerned? Uh, yeah. I mean, there were a few interesting things we picked up on. Um, like this is pretty specific to, tile placement games, but we found that, you know, when people were trying to fill a regular space with tiles, that was a lot easier for them than trying to create a shape with tiles, if that makes sense. Um, Like we had an objective that would be, you know, here's a shape. It would be like a little castle or like a, a couple of towers and sort of tell people, okay, place your shape so that it makes this bigger shape people could not handle that that was we had to cut that from the game because it was just too much for everybody which was which is a very strange thing and then there was a small percentage of players who just had no problem with that at all and um 
they actually would just gravitate towards that because it was the easiest one. We actually, we read into a bit of a balance problem with it because players who liked that puzzle um, could do it really easily, score a lot of points, but we had to make it easy enough that other players could do it and it was still too hard for them. They just wouldn't be able to get points to catch up to the players who could do that skill. Um, So that one specifically, sort of like using polyomino tiles to make irregular shapes was a lot harder than using them to make like to fill squares or fill, you know, predefined shapes on their board. Uh, the joys of playtesting and realizing yeah. that the game is a little different than what you had in your head, man. I tell you what, it's just one of those things. Like no matter how great the game idea is in my brain, it never works out that way in real life. Like other people just don't get it. And it's probably because we're smarter than them, I guess is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> that's gotta that's, be it. <laughs> yeah. It's gotta be it. Definitely not the case but anyway all right moving on so all right which what's, what's next what you want to talk about memory dexterity or math uh well let's talk about memory because <laughs> i saw um so that that one sort of tied into this for me because i saw there was a there was a conversation going on about it uh recently in one of the one of the facebook groups uh, on facebook design i forget which one specifically but you know someone someone asked the the question when is it appropriate to have a memory mechanic in games and, you know, it's a pretty simple question, but the, the responses were really controversial. Um, a lot of designers, it feel, it seems, feel there is absolutely no place for memory at all in modern games, uh, which I find, I find a bit, I, I find that crazy because, you know, growing up with board games, um, there were so many different games that involved memory, um, you know, whether it was as simple as the, as the memory card game or, uh, more complex stuff like, uh, you know, Operation, or not Operation, uh, sorry, Guess Who or Clue, for example. Those are games with a lot of memory elements. Um, and the modern modern design thinking has sort of moved in the direction of you should cut those elements out of your game wherever possible. Try to Try to get rid of memory because people aren't good at memory. People get frustrated uh, when they're faced with memory and they can't do it. Uh, and so it just, just should not be in your game. Um, and so that, and that was interesting because, you know, I, I immediately drew this connection to spatial reasoning and seeing how players who did not feel they were good at spatial reasoning had that same frustration of hitting a skill barrier that they just couldn't get past. Um, and the sort of uh, almost jealousy of playing with other players who did have that skill and getting kind of left in the dust and how frustrating an experience was to them that like there just wasn't anything they could do differently to have won that game. Uh, And I think that's kind of where the problem of skill barriers boils down to is that we have this idea that um, board games should be equal opportunity to win, right? That, That anybody at the table should have a chance to win going into a game and when you run into a specific skill barrier where one person at the table has a skill and the other players do not, it feels like an unfair advantage to them. And so then there's, there's you know, the, the simple way to deal with that is to just get rid of any of those skill-based advantages. It's super interesting though, right? Because if you think about sports, it's all about people on a team or people running around the track or swimming in a pool, whatever, like everyone has different advantages and disadvantages based on their height, their weight and how much training they put in, like all these different things in sports. That's just kind of 
how it is and, and finding ways to lean into your advantages and avoid your disadvantages and get good matchups and stuff like that. And so it's interesting when we get into kind of the board game space where it would be maybe perceived differently. And any ideas on why that would be? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting because I, I almost think that it's, um, I don't want to say mistaken reasoning, but all board games are already testing skill, right? Like it, it, we're, we think of these sort of contrived areas of, being skill barriers of memory, of spatial reasoning, whatever. But the ability to play modern Euro games well is already a skill, and it's already a barrier for a lot of people. They're just not playing board games, so it's it's not as relevant. But when when we when we deconstruct games to try and determine whether they're fair, uh, a lot of what it comes down to is the idea of skill versus luck, right? Um, you are you're either playing a game that is won by being the most skilled player or by getting the luckiest and those are really the only two things that that matter in terms of how how well you're going to do in a game did you make all the right decisions did you develop a strategy and execute it or did you just get lucky and get the right cards and and be in the right place at the right time and most games have some combination of those two things. Um, like if you want to do a hundred percent skill based, um, then you kind of get in the region of, of, you know, athletics and, uh, and where, where you try to eliminate all luck. Modern board games generally don't want to do quite that. They want to have a little bit of luck. Uh, you do have some perfect information, totally skill based games, uh, you could argue chess is a, is an example of that, where it's there's there is no luck in chess. It's 100% uh, predictable, or not predictable, but um, solvable. Uh, so that would be a, a, a perfectly skill-based game. And then on the other hand, you have a perfectly luck-based game, uh, which would be something like, I don't know, Sorry or Snakes and Ladders, where you're literally just rolling dice, you're making no decisions. We want most games to fall somewhere in the middle where you're making some good decisions, you're, you're testing some skills, some level of intelligence, but not so much so that the outcome is predetermined based on who has the highest skill going in. Um, right. Otherwise, there'd be no reason to play the game at all. I mean, that's why we play to see who's going to win, right? Yeah. Right. Um, but so there's this interesting. I think. I think what the skill barriers problem shows is that we have the board games community has sort of developed uh, an idea of what it means to be skilled at board games, which has a sort of a vague. Uh, not well-defined idea of like the things you should be good at if you are good at board games, things like making smart decisions and, and developing strategies and knowing where you want to play your place, your workers or what territories you want to control, things like that. Whereas certain other skills like remembering cards that were placed earlier by somebody or placing tiles in certain regions, those are considered separate skills and not part of this general board game skill. Um, and so those things, I think part of the the reason why it's this dichotomy has come down is that like board gamers are self-selecting for people who have this general board game skill. Like most people playing board games have some degree of being good at board games. Um, whereas it's not as true that most people playing modern board games are great at memory or great at dexterity or, or whatnot. Yeah, that's super interesting just to realize, especially as gamers, you know, kind of like us, the people on the this side of the hobby, the the hobby gaming, the niche gaming side of things, is that what we consider to be the floor 
is very much above what non-gamers would consider the floor. What we have normalized is way different than what people who have only ever played Monopoly and Uno and Jenga would consider normal, basic board game skills. And so I think it's super important to realize both as gamers, and so you, you don't find yourself excluding people because they don't get it, quote unquote, and as also game designers so that we can kind of find ways to open up our games and assuming that's the kind of game you're designing. Now, if you're designing an 18xx game, that's probably not what you're doing. But if you're designing a game that you want to have a bigger appeal, then you got to be aware of that and uh, understand what things maybe that we have normalized that people on the outside definitely don't find to be normal. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's, and one of the things that's interesting about the, the memory debate too, is that um, there, you know, there is science showing that uh, kids are a lot better at memory than adults. And so a lot of like kids games or, or family games do actually incorporate a lot of memory because um, it can help level the playing field between the kids and the adults. And so potentially using some of these other skills that we, we consider to be outside the realm of, of hobby board games uh, can, can help open up the hobby to other groups of people who might struggle with the hobby board game skill. Yeah, for sure. Now, in your opinion, is there ever a time or a way to implement memory into a game so that it actually works? Yeah, so I actually, you know, while this debate was going on, uh, one of the one of the guys at my uh, weekly playtest group brought out a game that had a relatively innocuous memory element. And the more I looked at it, the more I just, it felt perfect for that game. Um, and basically it was this... Um, you, it was an area control game, and you spent your resources to control areas, um, but there were a couple spots on the board where you could spend uh, resources into what was effectively a lottery system, um, and your odds of winning the lottery were based on how many resources you put into it. So over the course of the game, you would have to watch the other players putting in their resources and try to remember who had put what and which lottery to figure out the best place to put yours and, and where you'd have the best odds to win yours. Um, and other than that mechanic, the game's scoring was perfectly, um, was perfectly informed. Like there was no hidden scoring except for this one element. And it made for a really good balance of knowing how players were doing, but also having a slight bit of obfuscation of scoring so that, it didn't feel like the game was fixed, right? Like you, you never felt like you were out of it because you could always still win one of these lotteries. Um, and that to me seemed like a really good implementation of, of memory in a modern game. Now it was also such that if you felt like you couldn't do the memory puzzle, you could just ignore those lotteries and try to win the game without being involved in those in controlling those particular areas. Uh, which was was a nice way to sort of balance it for everybody was that like you didn't have to play this mini game if you didn't feel like that was something you wanted to do. Yeah, and I guess going back to what you said just a moment ago, if you're designing a game that also involves kids, so like a family game, then memory might be a good way to level the playing field and kind of bring kids and parents together in a way that's a little bit more even without the parent having to hold back, so to speak, that everybody can yeah. kind of be on the on the same playing field. Yeah, yeah, or or without having it being totally luck based, right? Because that's the other way to go with kids and family games is make something totally snakes and ladders, and and that tends to have the problem of adults getting bored with it, right? So, yeah, 
Absolutely. All right. Anything else you want to mention as far as memory? Uh, no, I think that's 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 it. Okay. In that case, moving on. Do you want to go dexterity or math? Uh, let's talk about dexterity. So I'm also working on a. Uh, I'm developing a game for Panasaurus uh, that is a dexterity game, um, and it's interesting to. Again, playtesting that and seeing how it follows the same sort of pattern as playtesting the spatial game, where some people would just hit this wall where uh, no matter how we change the basic layout of the rules, they would just struggle to move fast enough. Um, and it's not physically move fast enough, but make decisions fast enough um, to... Uh, to follow the game. So um, in this case, the game is, um, it's a set collection game with a speed mechanic, sort of like um, uh, Spit or Dutch Blitz, um, sort of classic games where you're trying to slap cards down on a pile faster than the other players do. Um, and you're, you're constantly drawing through a deck and trying to build sets uh, while using discards for other players. Um, and some players who, you know, I, I know are very good at games um, just hit a certain speed that they could speed threshold that they could not go faster than that. Um, so, and that's, I guess that's a little bit separate from uh, what we generally think of as uh, dexterity skills. Uh, I guess there's a sort of a, a region of dexterity skills, but, you know, flicking and aiming uh, or throwing things, you know, if you, uh, what's the big one that shut up and sit down was a huge fan of and, made a whole ro- a, an older game that they made a big revival of with where you flick the discs around. Was it flick them up? Uh, no, it was, um, it was like, they bought like a $200 wooden board. For oh, was it, it. Crokinole? Yeah, that's the one Crokinole, yeah. right? Like Crokinole is a pretty skill-based game. Uh, I would argue. And some players are just going to hit a wall with that. Um, so yeah. And that's a little different than, you know, than speed dexterity or stacking dexterity even. Like those are, there's a, there's a series of different skills in there, which I think have varying degrees of penetration in, in board games. Yeah. Now I love dexterity games because honestly, I want to win or lose based on me, not the roll of a die, not the drawing of a card, whatever uh, it's on me. I either hit the flick or I missed it and it's on, it's my fault, but I've run into a lot of gamers who hate that. They want to be able to blame the universe you know, they want to blame the dice. They want to blame the card draw, whatever. And so that's one thing I've run into as a designer. I even made two different versions of a very similar game. Uh, the, the original game was dexterity based. And then I had a lot of playtesters like, ah, this is fine. I enjoy a lot of the elements, but I just don't like the dexterity. Could you make a dice version? And I was like, sure. Okay. <laughs> so I did. I made a dice version of very, very much the same game with just a few tweaks and a few different, you know, differences uh, between the two. And so it's just something to, to be aware of. A lot of people... They don't like dexterity. That's not why they play games. They want to play games just kind of lay back and chill and, and see what the dice come up with or see what the card draws are. And when it comes to flicking or stacking or throwing or tossing, whatever, well, that's not why they play board games. If they wanted to do, to do that, they would go outside and, and play a totally different game. And so it's just something to be aware of as a designer. Yeah. Um, and if you do, like, like I said, I think that dexterity is one where there is a niche audience for that. Um, you know, the success of games like Flick 'em Up, like Icy Cool, um, lots of successful dexterity games. I think there uh, there's a degree to which if you can find those players and you can get those players to like your game, you don't necessarily need to reach the broader audience. But you do have to be aware that 
you are looking for a specific kind of play tester, right? You're looking for a specific audience and you're going to hear from a lot of people that they don't like your game and that they objectively think it's bad, even if it's more so that it's just not a game for them. Uh, it can be very different, difficult to tell the difference between those, right? Like it can be difficult to say, to hear someone say, uh, I think this is bad, make it a dice game instead and react to that and say, okay, well, maybe you're just not the play tester I'm looking for. That's, that's a difficult thing to hear because I think a lot of us designers, especially when we're starting out, um, we want to be modest. We want to be humble and listen to play testers is what they're telling us, right? Like we don't, I don't want to be a designer who ignores play tester feedback and, and, you know, like that's, that's important data. So yeah, as designers, I think we want to take feedback seriously. I think we want to listen to play testers and it's very hard and it takes a lot of experience to know when you shouldn't listen to play testers, when you should say, okay, this is my audience. I got to move on to the next play test and accept that, you know, I'm going to have to discount some quantity of playtest feedback because it just won't be hitting the right target. Yeah, it's a good point. And gamers are so funny. The other day, uh, I was laughing with a friend of mine here, and and he's kind of a gamer, but you know, not not super into it. And he didn't even know what Board Game Geek was. And so I was telling him about BGG and like, oh yeah, you can go in there and you can find games and rate them and stuff like that. And so he was a guy that has helped playtest a lot of my games, and specifically uh, the Final Flick Tier, which is a dexterity game I made a few years ago. And so he went on BGG, like while we were talking, he was just on his phone and he looked at the ratings for the game. And I told him, I was like, I don't, I don't look at ratings. I don't care. I'm not super concerned about what people rate my games on BGG. It's not something that, that I go for validation or to feel bad. I, I just don't care. And so he was like, well, I'm going to go look at it. And he was like scrolling through the comments and the ratings. And he's like, oh, this person gave it a three out of 10. And it says, I hate dexterity games. I hate flicking games. It's like, well... <laughs> Flick is in the name. It's in the title. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why anyone played this game and thought, hmm, I wonder if it's for me when they hate flicking games when it's in the name. But so gamers are funny and you just kind of have to take stuff with a grain of salt uh, in playtesting, but also in reviews and in ratings uh, because it, it just is what it is. Now, when it comes to dexterity, though, any ideas or any thoughts on maybe leaning into it or not? You know, when should you really just go all in on dexterity versus maybe mitigating it with some other things? What are your thoughts? in general there. Uh, yeah, well, I think, I think there's a, there's a similarity to the spatial stuff, which is that, um, when you, when you layer too much op on top of the dexterity, it starts to cause problems and it's slightly different. It's not so much a cognitive load problem in this case, as you start to feel like your the dexterity is overriding the other decisions you're making. So if you have a big strategic space, you have some mechanics for decision making, and then you have to stack a tower and the tower falls down, um, you feel like all the decisions you made sort of went to waste. So I, I find the best dexterity games really do focus on the dexterity element and that everything else is sort of subsidiary to the dexterity as opposed to having a dexterity element that you know contributes to a larger Euro game. Like I, I would, I would be careful about um, doing the thing we did with Cartouche, which was having a big worker placement game and then a, a dexterity mini mini game built onto that. Yeah, I think it can work, but you're you're definitely right. You got to be very intentional uh, about it. There's a game came out some years ago called Carnival Zombie. Did you ever see that game? No, I did not. 
Oh man, super interesting. It's a zombie game. It's got a lot of Euro in it, even though it is very much a, you know, run around, blow up zombies and shoot them with a shotgun. But it has this very interesting little mini game that's dexterity based where as you're killing zombies, they're, they're represented by cubes on the board. Again, very Euro in nature. And so as you kill them, you put them into this special area and then you get to a certain point and you have to drop the cubes onto like this little tombstone cardboard thing and any of the cubes that land on the cardboard thing and then bounce off. So anything that like comes off of that little tiny board, those revive, they come back to life. And so it puts this tiny little mini game dexterity element into, into the whole experience, which doesn't necessarily fit, but at the same time, it's super tense, super interesting. It's fun. Everybody's staring at the person as they drop <laughs> the cubes ever so carefully and try to keep them all on the little cardboard thing. And as the zombies stack up, as the cubes stack up, you get more and more tense because you know that some of these are going to fall off and you're going to have to fight them again. And so I think you can do it. It's just a matter of being intentional. Does it make sense? Because, again, that was kind of thematic. Like, you weren't mm. sure which of these zombies were going to come back to life and you had to fight them again. They are undead, after all. But, uh, but yeah, just something to definitely uh, keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think I think dexterity is an interesting one too because um, it straddles the line between luck and skill. Like, there's certain kinds of dexterity that are more luck based than skill based. Um, like, I, uh, you know, you can be pretty good at Jenga, but at the end of the day, you, the luck of, you know, when you're gonna have to pull a piece and the, the actual physics of it are a bit out of your control. Um, so, so I think there's a and and you know to the extent of where you're dropping things and trying to get them to, on, to land on a certain place, there's really only so much skill you could have in that before, you know, just the, the whims of physics are really deciding what happens for you. Um, and so I think, I, I do think that uh, a lot of people interpret uh, dexterity based stuff as, as just luck. Um, interesting example. Um, so uh, Pandasaurus about a year ago put out a, a roll and write game that was a flick and write game. And so it was just taking this idea of the roll and write where you're getting random dice results and, and doing a, a, an adaptive strategy based on that. Um, and then instead doing the flicking. And it turns out that flicking for your results in a, in a lower player count game, at least is actually more skill based than random based. So it creates a game with a very different feel than a typical roll and write, because you can actually, pretty significantly influence the results you're getting on the quote-unquote dice um, to, to make this game. Now, at, at higher player counts, when there's enough like ricochets and things going on, it starts to feel random again, and then I find that's a much more much more closer to the, uh, the roll-and-write experience. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, again, it's, uh, I think people often interpret certain kinds of dexterity as just luck based. And that can also have a, a problem where you're narrowing the audience and people are saying, I hate dexterity because they don't think it's skill based at all. Either that, or they have someone in their gaming group who is really good and yeah. is going to win every single time. So we might as well not even play. I think people run into that as well. All right. So anything else you want to add with dexterity? No, no, that's good. Cool. In that case, moving on to math. Mm -hmm. So math, um, Math is interesting. I, I, you know, I, well, <laughs> I keep saying things is interesting. It's all interesting. Um, I am bad at math. I would say, um, as someone with a math degree, uh, I intuitive math is just not something I can do very well, uh, whether it's arithmetic multiplication or, uh, really even just predicting probabilistic outcomes. Um, so when I play, I, I get to see things from the other side when I play uh, math-heavy games. Um, and for me, the big 
the big one for that is 18xx games, uh, where uh, obviously a lot of the mechanical math can be done for you with spreadsheets and things like that. But you really need a sense of where the numbers are going and how much things are going to be valued at in the future in order to play well. And um, a big, big part of that game is just having a an intuitive sense of, of the math that's going into the game. Um, and to me, I find that to be a, a big barrier. I can't really play 18xx games because I can't keep up with the math of, of the players around me. Um, but again, I think it, it follows the same sort of pattern where if you have a game that requires player to do a lot of math in their planning, you will get certain players who just check out of that game because they feel it's overwhelming because they're hitting a skill wall. Um, and you will get other players who really love that game because it's an innate skill that they have. Uh, so, I mean, I think there is, again, a sort of common design design philosophy that you should remove math from your game wherever you can, um, particularly when it comes to complicated scoring. I am always trying to find ways to use graphic design to reduce the amount of mental math that people have to do when they're scoring or when they're trying to figure out what their score is going to be. Uh, but there is certainly room for that in certain kinds of games where uh, people are looking for it. Uh, I mean, some some players love, absolutely love comp- complex scoring um, where they're able to intuit or, or predict how they're going to score relative to other players. Right. And like we've said several times before, it really comes down to who is your audience. There are a lot of people out there that love these kinds of games. They have a lot of math. They love to kind of break down math in their heads and figure things out and then they like feeling clever they like feeling smarter than the other people at the table because they crack the code on the math first or they did better than other other people and then there's a whole lot of people who think this is work and i didn't play a game to do a spreadsheet i played a game to blow up stuff and shoot zombies and run around or or just play a game that has no math in it (laughs) because i do math in my job you know i talked to a guy on the uh, on on this show years ago who was an accountant and so I asked him on the show, I was like, well, do you design games that have a lot of math? He goes, heck no, I hate that. I do that all day long. I don't want to do that for my hobby as well. And so, you know, there's a lot of people in that same situation that don't want to do math because it's it makes their brain hurt or they just don't like it or they just do it all day long and they don't want to do that for their hobby in general. So it just depends who's your audience and how do you lean into that group of people. Uh, anything else you want to add as far as math goes? Uh, well, actually, I, you know, as we were talking here, I had a, I had the thought that um, I think negotiation could potentially also be considered one of these one of these specific Ooh, skills. Yeah, let's add that as a fifth, sir. Yeah. That's a really good point because a lot of people struggle with confrontation. They struggle with valuation. That's another thing that a lot of games really they struggle with because you don't know how much something is worth. And that's a lot of euros as well, where you're like, okay, is this worth $10 or five or 25? I don't know. And so I'm just going to guess, Oh, look, it cost me the game at the end. Yeah. <laughs> that's really frustrating. And so, yeah, yeah, tell me more about negotiation and how that's a, a skill barrier. Well, and I'm, I'm also thinking of it in terms of the, the social aspect of negotiation. Like I play with a lot of gamers who don't like to speak up a lot and don't like to get really into the nitty gritty of, of haggling or of uh, trying to work out a deal. And I found um, one of the other games I'm de- developing for Jellybean is a is a negotiation game uh, that is sort of in the vein of uh, the King's Dilemma, uh, where you're a bunch of rulers who are uh, running a country together, and you're trying to work out uh, deals to make the country go in certain directions, economically or militarily or whatever. 
Um, and the game just totally falls flat when you hit a group of people who don't like to talk much. Um, if you, yeah, if, if you end up with a group, even no matter how strategic they are, if you can't get a conversation going and you can't get people talking and negotiating and discussing things, um, then the game's just really no fun. Um, and I think that can be seen in a similar way to some of this other stuff we've been talking about, like spatial reasoning, like, uh, like memory and things like that, that certain groups are going to have that affinity for talking and, and negotiating and, and doing social things. It'll make games that are very negotiating, negotiation heavy, uh, like Werewolf or, or Twilight Imperium or, or any of these games, really, uh, any social games. Uh, they're going to fall flat with people who don't have those skills. Um, and even if you have a group that largely has those skills, but there's one or two players who don't, they're going to struggle with it uh, in a similar way that we see with uh, the spatial reasoning. Yeah, that's definitely true. One thing I would add is as a designer, you want to make sure that your rules are very, very clear when it comes to the negotiation aspect. If the, if the rules say you can trade, well, what can I trade? Can I only trade my resources? Can I trade my victory points? Can I trade the shirt off my back? Like what what is allowed in this game? Because a lot of times games are very vague and they don't give you really precise you know, basically they don't, they don't tell you what kind of box you have to live in for the negotiation. I think that's also something that really bothers players is just being too vague and just not being clear enough in the negotiation aspects or in the amount of time it's supposed to take. And because a lot of times it's like, you have the negotiation phase. It was like, is that five minutes? Is that two hours? Like how long, like what should we do for that? How do we measure that? And so I think being very, very clear can also be very helpful here. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that's one of those things that is similar to like we were talking about ways to try and manage your skill barriers and make them uh, more accessible. I find players who really have a strong propensity for negotiation almost like live in those vaguenesses and can use them to their advantage. They can exploit stuff like that. Um, I'm thinking of playing Twilight Imperium with a, there's a couple guys in my group who will just sort of you know, rules lawyer all day in order to get a deal that benefits them. Um, and I, you know, I've seen in some of these negotiation games and, and this one that I was working on for, um, for Jellybean, um, making the rules too specific could kind of hinder the negotiations. But if they weren't specific enough, then people who were not as comfortable living in that sort of vague empty space would be really thrown off. So I, I do think it's a way making sure that your your negotiation rules are very specific and uh, not rigid, but well-structured is a good way to help onboard people who are maybe a little less skilled with negotiation. Like it gives them a starting point. Um, whereas if I think if you're catering, catering, like if you're going off the deep end and really just making a game that's all about negotiation, um, you might even want to leave things a little bit open-ended so that people can play with those rules. But be aware that if you do that, you're you're definitely going to be limiting your audience. You'll be scaring off people who are, are not as comfortable with it. Right. And it might even be worth adding in some variants for playgroups yeah. that are a little bit more shy or have players that are a little more introverted or something like that. Just add some variants in the rules to say, hey, here's a way, here's some ways you can make it a little bit more clear, a little bit uh, easier to, to deal with, something like that. Uh, anything else you want to add as far as negotiation? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think uh, I think this kind of plays into there was a there was a bit of a controversy, I think almost two years ago now with the shut up and sit down really liked a game called uh, Blood on the Clock Tower. And a lot of people were frustrated with the review they gave it. I thought that was a really interesting one because I, I think it, it seemed to me that what was happening where it was that, that the 
the group that Shut Up and Sit Down plays with are, generally speaking, a very high-skill diplomacy, negotiation, social group. Um, and that game seems to require that. Um, that seems to be a game that is targeted at a high negotiation skill audience, um, which there are a lot of gamers out there, like the the sort of subculture of werewolf players and uh, mafia players, things like that. They definitely have the skills to play something at that level. Uh, but I think the average hobby gamer the average viewer of Shut Up and Sit Down probably doesn't have as much skill as the Shut Up and Sit Down guys do. And so that was kind of why, or at least what I diagnosed as the as the disconnect between them really loving that game and a lot of people finding that it was falling flat with them. Of course, there were other issues with, you know, the price of the game and things like that. Um, but But I think that was a big part of it. Right. And like we said before, it really just comes down to knowing your audience and leaning into that vision for the game. Well, Jeff, this has been excellent. Closing thoughts. Any Anything you want to leave listeners with as far as skill barriers, how to overcome them, game designing, anything? Well, I want to jump back to uh, just the importance of your design vision. Um, I think that's really, at the end of the day, this is the, the, the guiding principle here. And, and a big part of that is being very intentional about whether you want to make a game that's going to sell or whether you want to make a game that you love. And if you are a player who really loves dexterity and you want to make a game about dexterity because that's what you love, um, then you probably want to be aware that not everybody's going to like it. And, and some people are going to run into a wall with it. And that's okay because it, it your vision was to create that game and you're creating that game. If you want to make a game that's going to sell, uh, you might have to make some tough choices about that and try to look at making your game more uh, mass appeal friendly and trying to limit some of those barriers that basically if you want to make a game that you think has the biggest potential to sell, I think you do have to try and limit barriers as much as you can. Uh, That said, um, you know, some of the most innovative games out there are ones that they're all ones no one saw coming. I mean, that's that's sort of the the nature of innovation is, is doing something that nobody thinks is going to work uh, and then it magically working. So maybe your, you know, your uh, really high cognitive load dexterity game could be uh, amazing, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on that. I wouldn't, uh, <laughs> I would uh, not quit my day job for that, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Well, Jeff, this has been great, man. Hey, you got a game on Kickstarter. Give me the two minute elevator pitch for that. Yeah, so that one's uh, that's Cartouche. Uh, it's with uh, Coffee Bean Games, which is uh, Jelly Bean Games' uh, imprint for medium weight Euro games. Uh, Jelly Bean makes a lot of uh, family games uh, with a, sort of a bit of bite to them, bit of strategy to them, and they're they're moving on into bigger games. And so Cartouche is the first game they're launching. It is a uh, tiling game where you are. Uh, archaeologists, and you're reconstructing a mural that has been destroyed. Um, in, in the theme is that you are trying to reconstruct the story of Hatshepsut, which is uh, a female pharaoh who whose son uh, sandblasted her name off of all of the murals because uh, he was super insecure. Um, so you're you're trying to piece together her legacy uh, by placing these hieroglyphic tiles and reconstructing murals, uh, and it's a uh, it's a pretty thinky, 90-minute uh, 
tiling game. Um, I talked a little bit about how there's a bunch of different objectives. You're, uh, you have uh, multicolored tiles, which can be used to either create patterns on your board to score your objectives or uh, gain resources by placing them in certain locations on the board to, to make certain matches with icons. Um, and you're kind of balancing all that. Um, you can get bonuses by uh, by completing objectives at certain intervals and in certain ways. Um, and what we're re we really set out to do, and I think what we we did pretty well, was uh, go beyond the uh, the standard tiling experience of sort of that um, you have in Baron Park. And like Baron Park is a very great game. Um, but if you're like me, uh, you can only play so much Baron Park before you, you need a little bit more brain tickling. Uh, and so we wanted to make a game that would would really push those visual spatial things. So if you are a spatial player, if you do love tiling games, you do love Tetris style polyominals, um, I think this is a great game. Awesome. Well, Jeff, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with Cartouche and everything else you got going on right now. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?